Well, welcome and good morning. This morning we're taking a look again at uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. We began last week a summer series on these two short letters that Paul wrote to this young church, a church that he saw planted on his second missionary journey. And it is, as I mentioned last week, most likely among the earliest of Paul's letters, maybe the earliest, along with the letter to the Galatians. And so these are the words of a a young church planter writing back to the church that he loves, that he's known only for a short time. And uh, Paul had planted a church in Philippi and had been forced out. And he planted a church in Thessalonica and had been forced out. And so he writes this letter back to this church that he loves, encouraging them in the gospel, exhorting them to believe. And you young Christians, as you listen to these words that I'll read to you from the second chapter, you'll notice that Paul writes about what he calls the gospel of God. The gospel of God. And he encourages these people to believe it, and he gives them some reasons why they should. You young Christians, listen carefully and see, why should you believe the good news that God has given to us in Jesus. This is what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 2. You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, But as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we pray that you would be with us 
Would you grant to us your spirit because, Lord, we again, as we always have to admit that apart from your spirit working, these are to us just words on paper. Would you make that not to be so? We pray that you would grant to us that these might come to us as they did to the Thessalonians, as the very word of God himself, not just the words of men, because we need to be changed, we need to be made new, and only you can do that. Lord, we pray in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last Monday evening, 40 women were coming to dinner at my house. Many of you were among them. The, the New St. Peter's Ladies' Night Inn was at our house for dinner. And so I understand from some of those who uh, I saw afterwards that it was a, a, a fun party, a, a great time for all. And I have no doubt about that, but I don't have first-hand experience with it because, well, I did what any reasonable man would do when 40 women are coming to his house for dinner. I went out to see a science fiction movie. I recruited one of my brothers in introversion, John Hickman, and the two of us secluded ourselves to the back row of a dark theater, and without hardly a word between us, we enjoyed the scenes of Jurassic World. I love dinosaur movies. They're a lot of fun. And he and I both, as engineers and mathematicians by training, we're, we're sort of gluttons for punishment when it comes to movies like this. Because we love the special effects. And, and we, we marvel at and take in all of the dramatic scenery that's digitally created, I hope. And at the same time, we scoff at the total unrealism of such a movie. I mean, you know, it's, I think it's not right, real. But anyway, I'm just kidding. You know, we, we watched this movie and took it in, and, and, and we wanted so badly to believe that it was true, but we knew that it wasn't. It was just, it was a fun time. Afterwards, I got back to my house, and some of the ladies were still there wrapping up the party and cleaning up, and, and one of you asked me, so who won, the people or the dinosaurs? That was a good question. I had to think about it for a minute, and I'm not going to give you any spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, you should go see it. But I said, you know, actually both won this time. I mean, you know the the storyline of a movie like this. Brilliant billionaire creates theme park with real dinosaurs in it on a secluded island, and people come, something goes dramatically wrong, and the heroes have to fix it. You know the the storyline of it. But But I said, you know, actually kind of both of them won, and this particular case, I mean, sort of, except for the people who got eaten. I guess they didn't win, but (laughs) on the whole, they both sort of won, and and we both really so wanted to believe it, you know, because it was so obviously incredible, unbelievable. The Apostle Paul has given the gospel to the Thessalonians, and that same gospel comes to us as something that's almost science fiction. It's almost too good to be true. It's, it's almost too much to believe. And if you understand the profundity of the gospel, then you do what the man did in Mark chapter 9, which you heard read to you moments ago. That man had a, a child who was afflicted with an evil spirit and had been for all of his years. And The man wanted help, and he heard that Jesus could help, that Jesus was a prophet, that he was a worker of miracles, and he came to find him. And and the man said to Jesus what what any 
parent in that case, I suppose, would do. If you can do anything, he said, have compassion and help us. I would have said that. And then Jesus said back to him some words that that are remarkable to me and stick with me and have for years. It's, It's fascinating to hear what he said to the man. He said, if you can, if you can, are you doubting that I can? If you can? No. He said, all things are possible for one who believes. We didn't finish the story. Jesus did heal the man's son, but not before the man professed his faith very realistically to say, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Paul and Silas and Timothy had presented to the Thessalonians a gospel truth absolutely remarkable, but not incredible, not unbelievable. He had said to them, here in this passage, he reminds them, we declare to you the gospel of God, verse 2. We shared with you the gospel of God, verse 8. We proclaimed to you the gospel of God, verse 9. In other words, this was not our good news, Paul says. This was God's good news that we gave to you. That by faith in the life and death and resurrection of the Son of God Himself, you might be blameless before God on the day when He returns. Because, Paul reminds them, He will. And so believe this good news. Believe it. Believe this good news of God's kingdom and His glory, Paul writes, because it stands above worldly weakness. You know that our coming to you is not in vain, he says. Paul's concerned. He's, he's kind of concerned about this young church that he had seen God plant in Thessalonica. Some of them may think that their coming, that Paul and Silas and Timothy, that their coming was, in fact, in vain, that it was an empty effort, a pointless work, because the three of them had been rushed out of town under a cloud of suspicion. The the Jews in the temple had become jealous of this new religious group that was attracting attention, and they brought false charges, and the civil authorities became concerned that this new group was proclaiming a new kingdom and a new king who would come again, and that was treason in the Roman Empire, and so They were run out of town. And so Paul makes an appeal to his friends here. His appeal is, listen, friends, don't let worldly weakness obstruct your view of the gospel of God because it stands above all of that. It stands above the messenger's weakness. I don't know really here if Paul is defending himself because of particular accusations that he's learned from Timothy who's gone to visit the Thessalonians, or if he's simply trying to assert the strength of the gospel for these, his beloved friends. But either way, the weakness of the messenger is potentially an obstacle to the gospel. And so, he says, verse 3, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. As I understand it, in the first century Roman world, it wasn't uncommon for itinerant philosophers and religious preachers to come around peddling their 
thought wares to the people of the empire. Religious hucksters coming with a new idea for self-improvement that people might pay a precious dime for. Uh, Self-improvement. You know, we've kind of relegated the notion of these people to a certain section of the bookstore or a certain page on your Amazon website, the self-improvement hucksters, and that's not new. They were there in the first century too, and Paul recognizes that he could be thrown into the lot of all of these because oftentimes discredited messages simply followed after discredited messengers. And so Paul had to distinguish himself, his methods and his message and his motives to these people because the gospel of God stands above its messengers. Ministers nowadays, you know, in Christian churches fall all the time. Every day, ministers fall to some moral failure and and exit the ministry. It happens all of the time. It's only been 20 years since I started seminary myself, and, and I know a dozen names of men who entered into the ministry with me in other places who are no longer in the ministry because of some error or some impurity or some deception. And when it happens, Christians begin to doubt. Christians begin to wonder, were his words legitimate that he said that sounded so right? Did I maybe follow bad advice from this one who's proven himself to be something else? Or even, does my baptism count because of who did it? That actually has been a question in church history. Back in the times of the Reformation, the Reformers were concerned about that. Christians were asking that question. Does my baptism even count because of where it came from? And so the writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the the statement of faith that our church embraces, acknowledge that question. In the chapter regarding sacraments, they actually said this. It's fascinating. They said the efficacy, that is the effectiveness of a sacrament does not depend upon the piety or intention of the one who administers it. Do you hear what they're saying? The effectiveness of a sacrament, like baptism, it doesn't depend on the piety, the godliness, the spiritual maturity, or even the intentions of the one who administers it. Because instead it depends upon the word of God and the work of his spirit in it. Paul explains to his friends, listen, we came to you not with words of flattery or greed or seeking glory from people. Instead, we speak not to please men, but rather to please God who tests our hearts. And that is, after all, the ultimate goal of the messenger, to to please God instead of men. It has to be because it's not just the messenger's weakness that can obstruct the gospel. It's also the receiver's weakness, the one who receives the message. Paul does have some reason for concern here because other Thessalonians, well-meaning ones, friends and family and neighbors of these young Christians in this young church surely were casting some doubts, some concerns for their friends who had joined this church. And these new Christians surely were wondering, some of them, were Paul and Silas and Timothy just among the religious hucksters, the the flatterers, the greedy liars even, who pass through town on occasion? Why is Paul concerned about that? 
Because he knows that while the messenger's failure cannot invalidate the message if true and the gospel is true, it can still distract the one who receives it. And so he reminds them, remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we work night and day that we might not be a burden to you while we proclaimed the gospel to you. We did all that we could to remove the obstacles of ourselves before you because you might have been distracted by them. Paul's conscience is very clear. But still, the one who receives the message can be weak, can be, you know, easily distracted. You've got got your your piles of to-do stuff back at home that you think about. You've got the, the, the swaying emphasis of other opinions of people who matter to you. you. You become easily bored because other things are so immediately gratifying and captivating. The receiver is weak in so many ways. We all are, but Paul's confidence is strong because even if the receivers might be weak, his message was not because it wasn't his. What does he say in verse 2? At the very beginning he says, even though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, remember he had left Philippi 90 miles away. He'd been forced out in jail and kicked out of the city. And now Thessalonica, the same sort of thing. He says, even though we'd already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, still we had boldness in our God to declare to you his gospel. God had called Paul and Silas and Timothy to Macedonia, to this region where Thessalonica was. God had called them there. You can read the story in Acts chapter 16. They wanted to go somewhere else. They had embarked on their second missionary journey. They had passed through Galatia and visited the groups, the small churches of Christians there that Paul had seen planted on his first journey. And then they wanted to go to a certain place, but Luke tells us the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go. And then they wanted to go to another place. And Luke tells us the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go. And then Paul had a dream calling him to Macedonia. And assuming that was the Lord's call, they went. Even though they found struggle and strife and opposition, they were beaten, they were imprisoned there. They recognized that God had called them there into that trouble of Philippi and Thessalonica and planted churches. So why the boldness to proclaim? Because it's God's gospel. God's the one who's at work here, and that work is never in vain, Paul says. So believe it because it stands above worldly weakness, but also also because of how it comes, it persuades with loving affection. You know, Paul explains, we weren't seeking glory from people. And we weren't asserting our position as apostles, though we might have done that. We didn't come with flattering words. Rather, we took on a completely different posture because the gospel of God doesn't seek approval. The gospel of God doesn't manipulate with power. And the gospel of God doesn't flatter. It persuades with loving affection. Verse 7, see what he said. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, Paul can't help himself. He has to indulge in these couple of metaphors here that are so helpful. He may not have been a parent himself, but he was not oblivious to the power 
of parental love. And so he explains further. He says, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Now, children don't realize this until much later in life. But a nurturing mother shares herself for her child's good at great expense. And I don't mean just money. Moms, you know this way better than I do as a dad. But her body changes. I mean, there's, there's a taxing price to be paid just to have a baby. Her body changes. Her sleep diminishes, right? Her worry increases. And her time, it's gone. It absolutely disappears. Moms, you know that. You know how that works. And all of these things she does in love. All of these things she sacrifices and gives of herself in love because a nurturing mother has laid aside her own glory for the sake of another. We just had another baby born yesterday to our congregation. Little Ruby Minnick was born to Rebecca and to Joseph. And they are today remembering yet again as they knew with their first three that this is what happens, that a nurturing mother gives herself to her children in love. She lays aside her own glory for the sake of another. There's a theological picture of this, you know. We call it the incarnation. The incarnation in which the Son of God took on flesh. He laid aside His glory and gave Himself. Not just His words, though His words are very powerful and important. We'll see again in a moment. But He gave Himself. He shares with you his own self. The the loving affection, though, is not just motherly, it's fatherly, too. And Paul doesn't miss the chance to go in that direction. He explains to them, our conduct toward you was blameless. Verse 10, what does he say? For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted and encouraged and charged you. Just the sort of things that a father is inclined to do, a good father, with his children. To, to strongly urge them along a path, to inspire them even and spur them on to persist on it, and even to take the step to impose upon them and to obligate them to certain responsibilities that he knows will be good and constructive for their lives as they walk on that path. He exhorts, he encourages, he charges them. You know, I think of my few days as a youth soccer coach roaming the sidelines of kindergarten and first and second grade boys' soccer fields, the hallways of power. And, you know, I could not yell loud enough in the context of all that. I wanted to encourage them, to exhort them, to to charge them to do what they should do because I could see what they should do, but they couldn't see it. And I just, I couldn't yell loud enough like a father trying to direct them on the right path to charge them to the goal. You know, the the gospel directs you like a father. But to do what? Paul tells us to walk in a manner worthy of God. That is, to show the fruit of faith, to do righteousness, and to do justice. Why? Why? Because He calls you into His own kingdom 
and glory. So how does the gospel come? Does it come with guilt? Well, you do have to see your own need, but it doesn't come with guilt. Does it come with fear? Well, you do have to recognize the consequences of life apart from God, but it doesn't come with fear. Ultimately, it comes with affection because you have to see where God wants you to go, and it's a good place. Every parent wants good for their child, right? The gospel of God persuades with loving affection, but you know, as, a, as the church, that task becomes more and more difficult, it seems, as history rolls on. It's become very difficult here in recent days in, in our society, here in this country. Now, you who've heard me preach over the past eight years know, I hope, that I'm not a political activist. That's just not really how I'm inclined to be. And certainly as a preacher, that's not where I tend to go. But recent events in, in this country require that things be said from a gospel pulpit. The racial strife of our country is pronounced, is it not? I mean, just last week I spoke a little bit to the matter in Charleston, South Carolina, and, and the, the strife of racial hatred that flowers out in our country still today in different places and in different ways and in all of our hearts, all of our hearts in different ways. And now just this past week, the, the assault on the institution of marriage, I have to say it that way. John Berger and I were talking about these things this week a little bit, and, and we, we realized that those two things, the racial strife and the assault on marriage, are actually very different weapons that are aiming at the same target. Do you know that? They're aiming at the same target, which is the image of God in man. That's what they're both after. That's what the evil one uses, both of those very different weapons to attack. Now, I spoke a bit to the one last week, but to the other one now, the, the Supreme Court of our country on Friday made a judicial ruling regarding same-sex marriage. And I know you've read about it. You've seen the news. It is everywhere. Everywhere you look, there are thoughts. People are blogging, posting questions and ideas and thoughts on it. You've, you've read, I'm sure, more than you care to read on it. I'll only say two things about it. Number one... The United States Supreme Court does not have the authority to define or even to redefine marriage. It doesn't. Because from the very beginning of creation, from the very beginning of history, the eternal God himself created marriage in his own way. And no man and no woman, no matter how educated they are, no matter how highly esteemed they are by our society or the world in general, no man and no woman has the authority to redefine what God himself has defined. Marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman before the face of Almighty God, and it is no other thing. It never will be anything else, no matter what our world says about it. It will not be anything else. Therefore, Christian. Don't fear. Don't worry and, and fret and lose sleep over the fact that the world has now said what the world has been saying for thousands of years. God is wrong. 
God doesn't know what he's talking about. The image of God in man doesn't actually really exist because we all are our own image and we make ourselves what we want ourselves to be. The world has always said that. This is nothing new. The second thing is this. That judicial ruling on Friday does not change a thing in regard to the mission and ministry and methods and and certainly the theology of this church or of any church that proclaims the gospel of God. In fact, if anything, it should refine us. It should make us more focused and more effective. It should refine us in expressing our love for our brothers and sisters in the church and our love for our friends outside of the church because that's what the gospel calls us to do with its affectionate, loving care. It should refine us in that way. It should refine us in the attention that we pay to our own marriages. You know, adults, the children of today are growing up in a very different world than we grew up in just 20 or 30 years ago. And our kids will hear voices on the outside that we didn't hear growing up. They need to recognize the attention that we pay to our own marriages, that we show to our kids righteousness and justice within the context of our own home in the loving affection of the gospel. That's what it should refine us to do, and it should refine us as well in the compassion and the kindness and the service that we render to any image bearer, regardless of color of skin and regardless of particular temptations to which they are prone, who step into the circles of the ministry of this church. The gospel calls us in its affectionate love to show compassion, to show kindness, to render service to everyone who bears the image of God. This ruling on Friday should refine us in those ways. So, because the gospel of God persuades with loving affection, all of these things to us cause us to to repent ourselves, to turn more and more away from our own temptations, and to turn more and more to the righteousness of Jesus that God has promised and that God has accomplished. So, the gospel persuades with loving affection, but if all of that causes you to doubt, then you have to see also that the gospel endures out of historical context. The gospel, as we call it, that word, good news, is not just religious theory, okay? It's not just moral ideas. And it is not certainly just a pliable policy shaped and reshaped according to the whims of a society. It is not that. It is rather rooted in and endures out of history itself out of a certain historical context in which it was born and in which it continues even today, a context of repeated trouble. Verse 14, you became imitators of the churches of Judea. How? Because you've got to remember, Macedonia is far from Judea in that world. It's a different part of the world. You became imitators of the churches of Judea because you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. That's quite a rap sheet, isn't it, that Paul gives to the Jews? And that might seem unfair. I mean, it it might seem anti-Semitic. Is is Paul anti-Jew? 
Well, he himself was a Jew, remember? He, he's speaking from within the family. And he's simply observing the providence of God in bringing about his redemptive plan. This is just a, a picture of the world's response to the gospel of God. It will always oppose it. It always has brought trouble where the gospel of God appears. It comes from outside the church. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And, and for all the ages, these troubles have been coming against the church. From the moment of the fall in Genesis 3, God has said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. But the gates of hell have been trying to prevail from the very beginning. The trouble comes from outside the church because the world wants to save itself. It comes from inside the church too, though, you know? I mean, from among us. And we have to recognize and in humility repent of our own parts of resistance to the gospel because there are parts of you that want to hold it at arm's length and say, no, not that part, Jesus. I'm not going to change there. It comes from inside as well. And why does opposition to the gospel cause so much trouble? It's because it actually exists within the bigger historical context of the mysterious word of God. All through history, the gospel of God has met opposition since the very beginning of Genesis it has, and it will until Jesus comes back. The, the book of Revelation gives a very dramatic picture of the fact that throughout all the ages, the kingdom of darkness is seeking to destroy the kingdom of light. We in this country have just been sheltered from it. I mean, let's be honest and recognize our historical context. We've had the great blessing, the great blessing to, to live in a country of freedom of expression and the freedom to worship as we see fit. And that's still where we live, though things seem to be changing in a hundred years from now, they may be dramatically different. 20 years from now, they may be dramatically different. We've been sheltered from that, but the reality has been all through the ages. This is the case that the kingdom of darkness is out to to conquer the kingdom of light. But even when your efforts and, and my efforts fail, Because of the opposition of our place in history, there's something else that's at work. And Paul states it in verse 13. This is a huge verse. He says, We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but rather as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. It was not the word of men. Paul came without flattery. He came without any manipulative attempts to persuade them against their conscience. He simply brought to them the very word of God, which is at work in them. Now, what can this mean? Because words are very ordinary things. They're everyday things. We all speak words, some more than others, on any given day. But we all speak some words to another person on any given day. And how can words work in you, as Paul says? You know, you know your, your friend whom you respect, whose opinion you care about, speaks some wisdom to you regarding some matter, and their words stick with you, depending on who the person was. Again, the messenger and the receiver and the weakness is there. But their words stick with you to some degree because 
They matter to you, but they're only people. What about the words of God who created with those words? You can't ever forget Genesis 1. In the beginning was the Word, as John tells us. The Word of God spoke. God spoke everything into existence with His powerful words. The Word of God created history. The Word of God came into history. And the Word of God still speaks in history. You know, what was so bad about the Jews' opposition to Paul's work as he put it here? In verse 16 he says, They hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. Paul recognized the power of God's mysterious Word. They hindered us from speaking. And that's the very thing that our culture will try to do. To hinder us from speaking because the power of God's Word is overwhelming and it brings salvation. The Gospel endures out of a certain historical context because it established that context. The Word of God did. From the beginning of history to the end of history, the Word of God is living and active and powerful. Paul appeals to his friends, and he appeals to you and me, listen, you've got to believe this gospel of God. You've got to believe this gospel of God. It stands above the messengers and the receivers in all of our weakness. This gospel comes to you persuading with affectionate love. And because of the power of God and His Word, it endures out of any historical context. Believe, along with our brothers and sisters in Thessalonica ages ago, believe and find the life that only God in His gospel can bring. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. O Lord our God, we pray that You would grant to us increasing faith. Enable us, I pray, Lord, to see and believe, to recognize and to know that you have, by your Spirit, called us to belong to you, that you have, by your Spirit, made us your own. Even through the sacraments that you call us to in your church, you mark little ones with the waters of faith. Grant to us your Spirit, Lord, that we might recognize how you call us, that you might make us new, and that you might enable us to speak your words to one another and to the world around us, and call them to believe because of your love in Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.